Shadow Talk. Hello and welcome to Shadow Talk, a weekly roundup of the latest threat intelligence. In a week where Rihanna stole headlines for a papal-themed outfit at the Met Gala, we take a look at what's under the Wintai umbrella, the Chinese state-associated threat collective. Speaking of umbrellas, we've got a shower of vulnerability stories for you. First, the Dark Hotel Group exploits a five-star zero-day vulnerability affecting Internet Explorer, and a new phishing campaign exploits an unpatched Microsoft 365 vulnerability. And has the reign of Olympus fallen? We look at the infighting and miscalculations within the dark web criminal community. All on this week's Shadow Talk. Hello, listeners. Welcome. Joining us this week, we are pleased to have with us Rose. Hello, Rose. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And we've also got Rafa. Hello, Rafa. You've, you've been a belt way, haven't you? Yeah, I had a nice two-week break. Re-energised. Happy to be back on the pod. What was the highlight of your, your trip? Uh, I went whale watching, actually, which was really cool. Saw a blue whale, which will live long in the memory. Wow. Exceptional. Okay, there's been a lot of state-associated threat actor news this week. Obviously, there's been some assessments about potential backlash following Trump's decision to revoke the US power participation in the Iran nuclear deal. Um, We'll certainly see what happens in the West in terms of retaliation, but certainly for organizations in Israel, there's probably some legitimate concerns here. Yeah, it's also worth bearing in mind that the new US embassy in Jerusalem is due to open in the next few days to coincide with the 70th anniversary of Israel's independence. So this news, the escalation of the conflict between Iran and Israel in Syria, coupled with activist campaigns like Op Israel and Op USA, might make it a pretty busy upcoming few weeks. Staying with Iranian activity, as well as Israeli organizations, we can expect to see continued sabotage and information gathering operations against the oil and gas manufacturing financial services sectors in areas like Saudi Arabia, which have been going on for a while. And the reason I say this is one of the major consequences to come out of the U.S.'s withdrawal from the nuclear deal is sanctions and curbs against Iran's oil exports. So you can expect to see that type of activity in in the longer term, so in a few months' time probably. Yeah, all great points. Thank you, Raf. However, the nation-state-associated news I want to talk about this week is news surrounding the Wintai Group. Now, the story is that these groups were formerly assumed to be separate, but have been tied together under one umbrella. Is, is that fair? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. I mean, I was just talking with Raf before we began the podcast about how the first time I came on this podcast, I was talking about the Anonymous Collective and how they were really different factions operating under a single brand. And when I made that analysis, I compared them to Rihanna at the Met Gala. And it's quite nice that now we're talking about a different collective and we've just had Rihanna at the Met Gala and I, I really appreciated her outfit this year. I thought it was excellent. Um, but to bring it back to the collective that we're talking about this week is this idea that different Chinese APT groups have actually been identified with overlapping C2 infrastructure as well as common TTPs. And these are groups, so Axiom, Wicked, Panda, who were previously thought to be separate. And now they think that even if these groups weren't acting together, they were at least being directed as a collective. The targets were pretty similar. 
We have gaming, software and technology companies in the USA, Japan, South Korea, and China. There are also Tibetan journalists, political activists, and the Thai government. And something that's quite interesting is the reason that we know this, or at least that we assess it to be this way, is because of some mistakes in operational security that these groups made. So some of the older C2 infrastructure was accessed without proxy services, and these pointed to a network in Beijing. That's a little bit interesting, and we like to snigger when sophisticated actors make OPSEC mistakes. Um, is there anything that did make this a particularly advanced or sophisticated campaign? Uh, any characteristics that, that made it really interesting? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are some really advanced TTPs. One of the most obvious is actually the persistence of the campaign. So if you look at different stages of the attacks, they first target software companies to get their hands on code signing certificates, and then they use these in later campaigns to obfuscate the malicious components. And that's really forward thinking. But something else is this dichotomy. So we have this really forward thinking way of attack, but we also have this kind of lame OPSEC, which is one of the risks that you get when you have all of these different groups, different technical capabilities working together. Yeah, I guess that's a good point to make. Um... And it must be pretty hard when you've got all these different groups as well to have one solid goal for them. And you can have those political goals, but we've also seen as part of this reporting, there are also financial motivations behind some of the targets. And that's not really that uncommon. We've seen that with the Lazarus group before, um, with these particular structures of groups. It's pretty reasonable to have both a primary political goal and a, and a secondary financial goal. Yeah, you're right in that the attack is demonstrated by financial and political motives. For me, it's more realistic that the financial element of the attacks were probably a secondary objective conducted for personal gain. And if we're thinking of these groups as an umbrella organization with a variety of individuals of different backgrounds, roles, skill sets, then it's not hard to imagine that some of these actors, some of these individuals evolved, when presented with the chance, they would perform opportunistic, financially motivated attacks that were not part of the primary aim of the Winty umbrella. Now, I'd like to say something about the techniques being used here to build on what Rosa said as well, uh, which will be particularly important for defenders. So often we assume that nation-state-affiliated actors are super advanced, super sophisticated, and some individuals might think there's nothing you can do about it if you're being targeted by a nation-state. Now, there's certainly some sophisticated approaches here, but the tools and tactics here also show how diverse what the skill set is within this umbrella, how they have varying skills and roles. So like with so many campaigns, spear phishing is pivotal here. It's often the most successful initial attack vector used across loads of different campaigns and operations. Email lures often have some sort of urgency and timeliness, preying on themes and topics that will be really relevant to the target organization, whether it's accounting, trade announcements, for example, or something in, uh, in current affairs in the, in the latest newswire. So anyone and any organization can fall victim to spear phishing emails. So we can't stress enough how important it is to provide good email security training for your employees, as well as controls and solutions such as email filtering services, disabling macros, etc. Yeah, I mean, on the topic of sophisticated spear phishing campaigns, one of the things that we've seen this week is a spear phishing campaign using general data protection regulation information as a lure. And it just shows you that attackers are really good at crafting contextual and believable 
emails and lures to get people to enter in their personal information or credit card information. So with the GDPR-based emails, they took a time when actually quite a lot of companies with holdings or bases in Europe are sending out similar emails to customers and exploited this to use this almost desensitization to just get people to input information that they might have use for later on. And then finally, there's the use of spoof domains here. So attackers love to impersonate services that might add legitimacy to their campaigns. They'll spoof large and well-known organizations or very popular technologies. And we know how easy it is to set up very realistic domain impersonations. We've talked about that quite a lot on the podcast. Uh, organizations should be proactively monitoring for both registrations of their own domains and typoscots of their own domain names, but also keeping a keen eye to see if they're receiving emails or communications from or being directed to domains that are trying to impersonate a genuine service. So a picture I'm painting here basically is that we've got a supposed nation state actor, but they're still using phishing domain squatting techniques, which aren't beyond the reach of more low-level actors, for want of a better word. So sometimes the simplest and the most relatively basic techniques are, are the most effective in certain ways. Yeah, and to go back to Rose's point, what really defines the sophistication of this group is the, is the persistence and being able to have all of the, the forward planning that you mentioned in the different stages of targeting. I think that is, that's pretty cool. The, the other thing with this is the types of services that this campaign was targeting, and particularly Office 365 is noted in this one. Um, there's quite a few vulnerabilities that come out related to Office 365 and one that's in the news this week that might want to prick people's ears up is known as Base Striker. Yeah, Base Striker. I mean, it's not, let's face it, it's not really a week in cyber if we haven't had somebody targeting Office 365 for something. (laughs) But yeah, Base Striker, which is one of my favorite names for a vulnerability, is a zero-day vulnerability that's been exploited in the wild for phishing attacks. It enables attackers to bypass security systems on Office 365 accounts by affecting the base HTML tag. And this is not really ever used except by developers in the head section of an HTML document. And its purpose is to establish a base URL for related links. So Office 365 security systems don't really support base URLs. So an attacker can distribute a rich text formatted email with a specific structure and then Office 365 won't scan it. And so then it won't detect any malicious content contained within that email. Um, We haven't seen it used for anything other than phishing yet, but there's no reason why it couldn't be used to distribute malware variants in the future. It would just be another step on for attackers exploiting it. Yeah, and and no CVE assigned for it yet, which means we get a great name, as you mentioned, but unfortunately, (laughs) uh, no patch. Okay, staying very much in that neck of the woods, there's been more activity from Dark Hotel, and this time it's another zero day, uh, this time targeting Chinese-based foreign trade entities. Hey, Raf, who are Dark Hotel? Um, Dark Hotel is the name given to a cyber espionage group that have been active since around 2007, and this group has conducted attacks against the hospitality sector in Asia, Europe, and the US, although a lot of the targeting has been in the Asian continent. Specifically, the group has tended to compromise the Wi-Fi infrastructure at hotels, and they've used this as a springboard to then intercept communications, to drop malware, to drop zero-day exploits, 
such as those affecting Adobe Flash. Now, Dark Hotel predominantly targets corporate and senior personnel to obtain sensitive info, intellectual property, software code. So you can, you can see where I'm going here. Now, whenever I have anyone ask me about threats to traveling VIPs or execs or senior employees, this is a group that I always like to refer to, particularly as their attacks demonstrate the importance of not conducting business transactions or communications through public Wi-Fis uh, or hotel Wi-Fis, which are often insecure and instead look to use something like a VPN service at all times if, if you have to connect to a corporate network. So that's Star Hotel. That's what they're best known for. Although I think this story is slightly different from what we've seen before. Yeah, what's, um, what's been the update on Dark Hotel then? So in this specific campaign, you mentioned a zero day. Um, and unfortunately, this one does have a CVE. So no fun nickname, Sai. It's actually CVE 2018-8174. It's very snappy. Um, but it's aimed at Internet Explorer. And what's really cool about this one is that it enables an attacker to render a web page using the Internet Explorer engine, even if Internet Explorer isn't set as the default browser on the device. So it allows them to create this, um, it allows them to create the conditions needed for an attack, even when that wouldn't automatically be happening. Okay, thanks, Rose. And finally, there's been some interesting goings on within the dark web community, uh, specifically with the Olympus marketplace. Raf, talk us through what Olympus is or was, what Dread is or was, and why they did a bad thing. And I would, I would hope you've got some puns lined up for Olympus because, I mean, if there's no puns there, I think, I think we're out. I think you started off on one. Didn't you? I think you mentioned Olympus had fallen. Or if not, there's your pun. <laughs> all right so what olympus is or was so since the alpha bay enhancer takedowns of july last year uh which these were two of the biggest stock web marketplaces selling a variety of different products all my drugs malware tools compromised accounts counterfeit goods you get the picture um so since then a number of other sites have vied to take over as a dominant marketplace this includes stream market wall street Totsko. they've all tried and fallen short then, a site known as Olympus seemed to be making its way to the top. Now, after having slowly developed a good reputation, the admin of Olympus last week claimed that they were in the process of hacking Dread, which was a Reddit-style community run by a user infamous for pointing out security flaws in other dark web marketplaces. And he's got a great name. We're going to have to tell listeners his name. I'll let you take the... I, take that one, Mike. It's Hugbunter, which is, which is very pleasing but very hard to say there's your vulnerability name rose <laughs> so however it soon transpired that this was not a traditional hack let's say instead the admin of olympus allegedly acquired access to the dread servers from an insider now the user community of dread rallied behind the designer of the dread forum and then a consensus formed arguing that Olympus was in the wrong and that Dread was an innocent victim. In the end, the moderators of Olympus had to come out and issue an apology to the Dread admins for their actions. Now Olympus seems to be aware of the damage it has caused to its own reputation as to come out by saying, oh, look, we're going to hire a good PR within the next few days. The site has been down multiple times recently for maintenance. So it's still it's quite unclear now what the future of Olympus might be. 
Now, the reason I like this story is that it again demonstrates that underground enterprises, these criminal endeavors, have to operate in similar ways to legitimate businesses. In this case, a positive public image is really important to drive revenue. And it's important not to lose sight of these factors when we assess how the cyber criminal ecosystem functions. Yeah, I think, I think Dread is, is still down as well. And it doesn't look great for Olympus now that they've been removed from listed as a market on deep.web. So I think uh, the time is up almost for Olympus, but uh, the marketplace is still alive, still churning away, but less and less traffic in there. So uh, we'll see how that pans out and what be the next marketplace to bubble up. I guess it also reminds us that it's not just law enforcement that's disrupting um, kind of the criminal ecosystem as well. They've got competitors to worry about too. So I think when you're looking at the threat models of the attackers themselves, they've got a lot to be considering and they're always under attack. Uh, Certainly DDoS attempts against online marketplaces um, across the dark web in particular are, are no stranger. Anyway, that is, that's all on the Olympus story. We'll, we'll stay tuned on that. Um, let's, for now, go to the key takeaways. Rose, what have you got? So this week for me is about the targeted and timely nature of spear phishing and the fact that a lot of really, really sophisticated campaigns start off by exploiting people. And we keep emphasizing the need for continual training on spear phishing and social engineering techniques. But actually, I think that it's really important we emphasize that this has to be everyone in an organization. Because it's not just targeting people at the higher end or the sort of active end of businesses. It's also targeting everyone. So that, for me, is something that's really been highlighted this week. Um, and also, Rihanna won the internet, so we can all go home. <laughs> and Raf, what about yourself? So going back to the Winty story, for me, there's something to be said here about attacks conducted by state-sponsored or advanced threat groups and how they might impact your organization. For me, the fact that they targeted, a, they targeted software companies to grab those code signing certificates is significant, as it reminds us that You don't need to be a large power station or a big pharmaceutical company to be on the radar of a sophisticated group, particularly a nation state affiliated actor. I think there's a tendency among some smaller organizations, understandably to some extent, to assume that you won't be on on the radar for these type of attacks. However, I think organizations need to understand exactly what data they hold and appreciate what value they might have for an attacker. So you might be a relatively smaller organization, but you can still be targeted if you fall within the supply chain of a bigger, a bigger target or a bigger group of companies, particularly if you, can, if you have data where you can provide a springboard to then facilitate a larger attack. In this case, the code signing certs were very useful for the, for the longer form of the operation. So for smaller organizations, your threat models should therefore take, take this into account and you should be modeling scenarios, be modeling controls and implementing them, not just based on the methodologies used by less well-resourced threat actors. You need to look at the broader picture. Absolutely. Thanks, Raf. And thanks, Rose. Great points as usual. Thank you for joining us this week. Thanks, Mike. Have a good weekend. Toodle pip. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Shadow Talk. For more research and analysis from the Digital Shadows team, visit resources.digitalshadows.com.